Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Indeed, we have to remember that the Son of God was this way treated in his person in order to receive upon himself all the shame which we deserve. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver today. We have a John Calvin episode for you. He preached this in Geneva in the 1500s. Troy, I am so happy to be back. How are you doing? Uh, Joel, I'm doing well, and we are back. This is If you are listening to this out of you know, sequence with the context. episodes, you you would have no idea, but we've taken a two or three week break here. I've I've learned multiple languages, traveled the world. I think, <laughs> no, actually that's not true, but Joel, you have been traveling, so. Yeah, just got back from South Africa filming a project there, so happy to be back home. Still jet lagged, uh, but doing a-okay. It was a good break. We uh, I got a lot of work done for the studio. We have so many sermons out, so many new people who are jumping on speaking who have the sermons and scripts that they need to, to move forward. So there's a lot of stuff that Joel and I have been working on for a, quite a while that are uh, we're starting to see some kind of fruition and some movement forward. And so I'm quite excited about that. It was a good, good break. But for you, the listener, you are probably just excited to have this episode back. We have not covered John Calvin in a while. Usually every year, every Easter, we put up a John Calvin episode on this series from the Passion of the Christ, where he talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's been really good. This year it got out late just because we had forgotten Hollywood and so many other things going on. Uh, But I highly encourage you, if you like this episode, make sure you go listen to the other two Passion of the Christ episodes as well. They're very, very good sermons in the catalog. I have people who have reached out to me who say, I do not like John Calvin. I am not a Calvinist. (laughs) I'm a strong Arminian. You know, this guy's the worst. But I love these sermons. I love these sermons on the Passion of the Christ, and they're some of the best, I think, in all of the Revive Thoughts catalog. So definitely go check those out after you listen to this one. Yeah, and we have Ed Backel uh, narrating once again. Uh, we're always happy to have Ed uh, narrate it. So he's, this is a good, good, strong episode out of the gate, back from our break. We have done, as Troy mentioned, previous episodes on John Calvin, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on his backstory, but here's the 30-second Reader's Digest overview of uh, John Calvin's upbringing. Born in 1509, he grew up in the Catholic Church, serving in the Catholic Church as a young man, but he actually studied and became a lawyer. Uh, That was until his father died, and uh, about this whole time that the Reformation was in full swing, and, uh, you know, Calvin associated with the Reformation. He's one of those kind of founding fathers of what we uh, think of Protestantism. Protestantism. Protestantism? How about he's a founding father of the Protestants? (laughs) And that leads us up to what we're talking about today, Troy. Troy, what are we talking about regarding John Calvin on this Calvin-focused episode? Absolutely. So we've we've covered his life, and like I mentioned in the earlier part, if you have not listened to our other episodes on John Calvin, we really recommend that you do so. We've covered so many different aspects of his life. But in this episode of Revive Thoughts, maybe because we're just coming back, I'm diving in with a big topic, but I wanted to not shy away from this really tough issue that I think is worth a discussion. I actually think, Joel, and as I was writing this script, I realized I think this would make a good revived conversation, maybe mm. even a series of revived conversations. So we'll keep this in mind. This this could literally be a deep dive, but it's basically just kind of what do we do with these men of God 
who I don't say I don't is the phrase go too far. They're too strong. They're too <laughs> tough. Let's let's mm. talk about how we describe this because uh, we look at Calvin's Geneva and we like Calvin at you know Revised Studios. We like a lot of these guys that you know history. History people sometimes rewrite history. They don't like John Leslie. They don't like George Whitfield. They don't like Calvin. We love all these guys, um, but I think most of us think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of these men when they kind of judge them. But there is mm-hmm. this other side where we don't want to ignore things. We talked about the Servetus, Michael Servetus, the, the burning of the heretic on one episode of Calvin. Yet on this episode, uh, I wanted to kind of tackle w- this basic idea of like, okay, people will say, I love Calvin's theology. I love the things he wrote. I love the institutes. Okay, but would you want to live in Geneva? You know, it's easy to say, I love these guys, and I love what they did, and they're so great. But at the same time, is Geneva, the mm-hmm. city he kind of took over and helped run, he didn't completely run it. I'm sure there are people right now writing emails being like, actually, he wasn't the real person running it. It was the council and all. I, I know what you're saying. But at the same time, Calvin had a huge influence on it. And the question is, would you, you know, would you want to live in Geneva? Because yes, he did these great things for the faith. Yes, his books are studied and read today. And I think we can, you know, and we talked about in the last episode that we did on Calvin, we talked about how the idea of democracy and all are equal under the law really stems from Calvin. He did great things. Yet, would you want to live in the town while he's running it? Would you want to be somebody living in Geneva at that time? And it's also pretty unique in this situation because... The Catholic Church was so intertwined with the government at in, in this era, and so when you take away the Catholic Church, you're taking away the structure for how cities and countries work as well, and you have to figure out what that looks like. What you know, what what does that do? It's very different than how we think of life here in America. You know, separation of church and state that wasn't a thing back then. Famously, Calvin uh, he did not intend originally to stay in Geneva. It was actually the fact that someone threatened him with a curse if he left the town. So this whole thing is kind of weird because a curse, like, you know, when I think of a curse, I think of like, you know, Harry Potter or something. It's not quite like that. (laughs) Uh, It's much more of like the Old Testament curse where, you know, there'll be a curse on your family if you leave. Why this guy could even do that, 100%, I don't even know. Like, why, (laughs) why was this guy's curse better than like a drunken guy's curse? But he was someone that Calvin looked up to. He was like the main minister of the city. He was important member of the Reformation, especially in Geneva. And he really felt strongly that Calvin should not leave Geneva, but should be a part of the work they're going to do. And when Calvin was like, no, I'm only, you know, coming for a while. I've got other places I want to go. The guy basically was like, if you leave, the wrath of God will be upon you. I'm, I'm invoking a curse on you because I think you need to stay and help me run Geneva and Again, again, strange as that is, that was what Calvin's reason for saying he cited as was, you know, if I left, I'd get cursed. And he believed it. So he's very sincere. Uh, and at the same time, I think for us, 500 years removed from that, it's just something we don't, you know, we don't relate mm-hmm. to. In the same way that if we told Calvin, you know, hey, you know, Calvin, if you leave Geneva, you're canceled. He wouldn't know what that means either. So, I mean, there's certain <laughs> things that we just, over time, we don't understand each other. Right, right. So he arrives in Geneva, 1536, in the year 1536. And Geneva at this time was just just in the infancy of Protestantism. They had taken part in the Catholic Church, but now uh, the, the new system of what a new church looks like hadn't been established yet, haven't been hadn't been built there at that point. Up until this point, the Czech, the Catholic Church, again, was the government. Like it, They worked together hand-in-hand with the city council there. So when you throw out the Catholic Church, who's running things now? Who's who's in charge? And the the city met, and they actually 
had an agreement that they want a Christ-centered, biblical-centered town. You know, as as a city, as a body, they made a declaration and a proclamation in 1536, and they all swore together to live by God's word, essentially trying to make like a Christian community, uh, which we've seen a few times throughout history, this one probably being one of the more notable ones, but it's a very unique town it ended up being. Yeah, and it's. I think it's important to note that what we're about to talk about, there's those rules and all these things people have to live by, but we do have to remember they did agree to it. Like, this wasn't like a king declared it and everyone had to do it. The people said, we want to live like this, and so then Calvin and them go, well, here are the rules to live by what you say you want to live by. Uh, You can always leave, but if you're going to stay, here's the rules we want you to follow. I I think that sometimes gets lost in the discussion of, Mm -hmm. because there are people who discuss, was Calvin a dictatorial tyrant? I read an article, um, very progressive, not written by a Christian, that basically was saying something to the effect of that Calvin is Mao of the 1500s. It's just enough time has passed that we celebrate him. And well, I don't know about that, because Calvin was quite celebrated in his day. Mao is forcibly celebrated in his day, you know, so a little bit of a different idea. But this idea that he was this dictator, uh, but the people wanted to be there. You could leave anytime you wanted, but if you chose, this is mm-hmm. kind of the city you'd want to be. Now, Geneva, also important to note, was not a big name yet. Like we think of Geneva, that's a world-class city that, you know, very famous, but at the time, it was a small trade town. Parts of it were wealthy because they were kind of on the crossroads of multiple countries, so you'd have like a lot of trading going through. It was a medieval town, and the people had a reputation for party. Like they were known for being a party city that you went to, and you could kind of have fun. You know, alcohol and all that stuff was definitely a big part of the scene there. But the Reformation was changing the hearts of people, and the persecution of Protestants was changing people too. When you leave somewhere because the Catholic Church is saying, if you don't convert back to Catholicism, we will kill you, we'll burn your homes. Well, if you're willing to leave that and go to another place, you're very sincere and very serious about your faith, that faith that you're standing for, right? Like you just literally risked your life to represent it. So you must be devoted to what you believe. So as you enter this new city, you're going to want to have a city that kind of reflects that level of devotion. This is a city that is being reshaped and rebuilt by people who risked their lives to go there, who were persecuted for their faith, and now they want to live out that faith freely and pass it on to their children. Also, a couple other things about Geneva. Only seven years before Calvin got there, the Holy Roman Emperor had seized and jailed ministers in that city for preaching Lutheran ideas. So it really was not that long ago. I mean, think about how far back seven years ago was for you. That's how long ago the Catholic Church was so strong in this town that they were jailing people for ministering anything that wasn't the Catholic Church. And now, five years after that, they disassemble the church, they throw out the, the bishops, they say, we're not going to be that kind of place anymore. And then here is, and then, you know, two years later, Calvin and these people show up with the plan of how to move forward. It wasn't like Calvin and these guys stepped into a, sto- you know, a peaceful, calm lake, and they turned it into a stormy sea. It was quite the opposite. This was a very stormy town with no one sure how to run it. And these guys came forward and said, here's the plan. You guys say you want to live by God's word and do something new. Here's what we think that something new should look like. Everywhere in the world at the time, at least in Europe, the Reformation is changing things. Catholics are killing and attacking reformers in France. And Calvin is saying, let's set up a place. Let's set up a refuge. Let's set up somewhere that will be strict. We're going to live by God's word, but it's going to be a safety, a haven for people running from 
uh, the Catholic, you know, Inquisition-like attacks. Yeah, so Troy, let me, I'm going to give you a rundown. This is what an average week uh, in Geneva, you know, we, we got the rules established, we got our basic roadmap for what uh, the do's and don'ts of Geneva during this era are, and it is pretty strict, okay? So Monday, sun, so let's, so Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, there were sermons that you were required to attend, essentially. Uh, so four days a week, you went and heard, you know, sat in the congregation, listened to a preaching. You also brought your children, uh, and they were brought up in the ways and taught in the ways during these times as well. You had to be a member of the church, and you had to agree to the council that Calvin had set up there, or essentially be kicked out. Again, so this is not, <laughs> again, when we think of separation of church and state, that's not what this is. The the, the church is the state in this city, right? A list of things that you would get in trouble for. Disciplinary measures were taken uh, if you missed one of those sermons, uh, if you critiqued a minister, if you used any charms, family quarrels would get you in trouble, Uh, cases of drunkenness or gambling, dancing, profanity, wife beating, adultery, all big no-nos, all things you'd get in trouble for. Which, I mean, some of those, like wife beating, I think, you know, I'm completely down with, you know, not all of these. Yeah. Um, dancing? I, I think adultery, but dancing, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a profane person, but I'm not sure a person should instantly be thrown out of the church if they, mm-hmm. you know, trip and say a bad word or critiquing the minister. I think that one's really hard, right? Because it's like, wait a right. second now, what if he's Free genuinely speech. saying something bad or he is doing something wrong? You can't critique him. Okay. Continue. Sorry. There's more because there's more here. So, um, you couldn't have your fortune told by gypsies, which was a thing uh, in that era. You couldn't make noises during sermon, like can't be disruptful. You couldn't praise the pope. No, you know you can't. You can't talk all of the pope. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, a, a woman of seventy it wasn't allowed to marry a youth of twenty-five. And see, that's because all of these you're reading right now are real cases. So somebody Mm -hmm. did make noise. Somebody did go get their fortune told. And so some woman must have been 70 and was trying to marry a 25-year-old man. And they said, nah, no, not, we're not doing that. And one last one, a barber gave a Catholic priest like their classic bald in the middle, hair around the sides, Martin Luther look if you can picture it in your head. And that also got them in trouble. So again, many people would say, I love John Calvin's theology. And there might be somebody listening who's like, I want to live in that town. Put me in there. That's 100%. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to judge you for it if that's you. But I think there's a lot of us who go, whoa, wait a second now. That that would be a tough city for me to live in. Although I agree, you might even say, I agree with all of those things. Do I want to live in a town where the church slash state is telling me I can't do any of those things where I have to, you know, watch out for my fourth sermon of the week. Uh, somebody, you know, some, my child sneezes too loud and I'm in trouble. And I'm sure it wasn't like that. I'm sure the disruptions were real disruptions, but at the same time, you know, that, that is something I think many of us would not agree to go to. You know, if you had to choose between where you live right now and that, again, some of us might say yes, but I think there's a lot of us who go, I think that's too much power in the hands of the church. Uh, most of us would probably think that's just not something to get, you know, giving a priest a haircut is not something to get the civil authorities involved in. But look around at this time period. Remember, this is history and 500 years ago. Zwingli had tried to build up a city. He ended up getting in a fight with the Catholic Church and he failed and his city and his movement kind of fell apart. Many of the reformers had lost their cities and died. Every day, this city that Geneva is having new refugees flooding in from places where the reformers or the Protestants are getting killed. They needed a place where they 
could be safe. It was not unheard of in this city of Geneva in the past to have mobs take down the leaders and just hang them up basically when they're done with them. And so Calvin had actually kind of left during a brief time when these mobs had gotten too wild. So when they came back, when they invited him back, he needed to have strong control over the city or he feared it would go back into mob violence. And the whole time Geneva was being run by Calvin until the last decade or so, there was this faction of people called the Libertines who were fighting against everything he was saying, saying, no, nah, look, we're not going to be strict. We're just going to be loosey-goosey. And so he was constantly going up against them. But there are even other things too. I mean, you weren't allowed to fast. You weren't allowed to make pilgrimages. One man got in trouble for lighting a candle. This is a Catholic tradition at the grave of his son. And you may say, I don't believe you should light a candle, that kind of thing. Whatever this was, was probably a very spiritual Catholic idea. But man, do you want to get it onto a guy for doing it at the grave of a son? That's kind of a tough thing. No dice, no card playing, no taverns for drinking. There's a lot of rules here that the church is overseeing. When he, when he was fully taken over, he began ousting his enemies, the people who had stood up against him. And one year he excommunicated, I mean, not just him, but the council, the whole city got together and excommunicated 300 people uh, just one year alone. Yet the city continued to grow just because they had so many refugees pouring in that you could afford to excommunicate a lot of people because you were just refilling up that space almost instantly. Yeah, we, we've kind of been focusing on the negative side of things, but let's talk about some of the positives because there were a lot of areas where they were clearly ahead of their times and they built a special hospital for plague victims in such a way that it wouldn't get others sick, which uh, most people hadn't figured out by that point. Um, they forced loan interest rates to come way down so the rich wouldn't be able to take advantage of the poor. He also may have created, to some degree, what we think of as unions. He forced employers to listen and work fairly with their employees. Uh, you could get kicked out for not paying your employees a fair salary in Geneva, which, you know, some would argue is probably a pretty good system. He started the first real reformed college, which exploded. The small town of Geneva had many books published under it. As long as you wrote something that Calvin approved, it would go into the library there. He realized the need for education since uh, that's how people could follow the rules and the doctrine, right? You can't uh, understand and, and study this stuff for yourself if you couldn't read. And so because of that, huge efforts were made to educate all the people there. And because of that, Geneva had one of the highest literacy rates in the entire world at this point. The academy there, the school that he created, uh, also sent out thousands of missionaries during this time. So a lot of, a lot of good things in the, in, the, in the prose column as well. Yeah. So instead of I mean, he may, if he was a dictator, you know, if we're using that language, which I think would be not fair, but if we're using that language, there's just as there are bad rules, there are a lot of good things happening that made Geneva go from a small podunk town you really would have never heard of to a world class city that's still respected uh, to this very day. One of the more interesting aspects of Calvin too was the fact that despite his extreme strictness. He was actually really open to Christians that came from a different denomination than him. Now, those Christians were not Catholics, so let me be very clear. He was very open to everyone who was not Catholic. Um, it wasn't super cool with the Anabaptists either. But he was personal friends with Luther's right-hand man, Melanchthon. They would write letters together. They kind of fostered a relationship. And had it not been for kind of uh, political enemies of Melanchthon stopping them, he was really, Calvin was really trying to open the door to letting Lutherans take communion with them and have a relationship with the Lutheran movement. 
And eventually, he was also able to win over Bollinger, who was the successor to Zwingli, and they came together and had what was called the Zurich Consensus, which basically ended the fight over the Lord's Supper, allowed the people of Switzerland to have each other's churches, and kind of brought the Calvin side of the Reform Movement and the Zwingli side of the Reform Movement together so that these two sides were no longer warring. He was very instrumental in bringing apart that peace. So again, if you lived in a city, the rules were very strict. You might have thought he hated Christians that weren't like him. Yet, when we see him, he's very friendly to the Lutherans. He's very friendly to the Zwingliites. He's just not going to be very friendly with you if you're Catholic or if you're Anabaptist or if you're a Unitarian like Zervetus. Uh, he was also very politically involved. He wrote letters and submitted proposals to the Queen of England, um, which she saw him as the guy who mentored John Knox, so she didn't really like him because John Knox was causing all these problems in Scotland at the time. Uh, but he also wrote letters to King Edward VI. To King Henry in France, he would write him letters saying, hey, stop persecuting the Huguenots, which are the Protestants in France at that time. He also would write letters to the kings of Denmark and Sweden. So he's this very politically involved guy, always trying to get things moving and happening and really focused on trying to help the movement of Protestants and Christianity uh, separating out of the Catholic Church grow. Calvin is thought in some ways also be, to be the forefather of both capitalism and democracy, although democracy existed in the Greek states, the idea of all being equal under the law really took shape in Geneva. But we've talked about that in a different episode, so I won't get into that too much. But again, I kind of go back to that question. As great as all those things are, would you personally want to live in Geneva? And I think the answer for most of us is no, I don't want to move to Geneva because that just sounds like a really strict and tough place to live. But then I remember, well, yeah, but thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees poured in from all corners because despite those rules, despite knowing how strict it was, they desperately wanted to move to Geneva. And because of Calvin's rules, because of the city that he was building, it became a huge, popular, first-class, first-world uh, city despite all that. So yes, even though today I wouldn't want to go back in time and probably move to Geneva, although I might visit uh, there are many people who, when they had the opportunity, living at that time in medieval Europe, kind of moving towards the Protestant Reformation, they said, yes, I do want to move and live in Geneva. That sounds like a good place to be right now. J despite all those things, Calvin definitely had a heart for God. And as we listen to the Sermon on the Passion of Christ, I think we will see just how much his desire to love and serve God was a part of that. And his, his, his description of Christ on the cross really motivates all of that. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered for him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and beat him on the head. And after that they mocked him. They took off the robe and put his own robe on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. He was compelled to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mixed with gall, and when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And they crucified him and took his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my robe they cast lots. And sitting down they watched him there, and set up over his head an accusation written, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, You that destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Matthew 27. We see how he was in disgrace. They mocked him. And instead of a royal diadem, he had a crown of thorns. Instead of a scepter, he had a reed. Then everything that could be imagined to heap shame upon a man was done to him. If we limit our attention to just what is narrated here, it would be as if it were the goal to alienate us from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would have alienated us from all hope of salvation. But we have to contemplate by faith the spiritual kingdom which was mentioned before. Then we can conclude, although men mock the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he never ceased to be prized according to his worth, both before God and before his angels. Indeed, we have to remember that the Son of God was this way treated in his person, in order to receive upon himself all the shame which we deserve. For how can we stand before God while we are defiled in our sins? But since our Lord Jesus suffered them to spit in his face, he was willing to be beaten on the head, he received all insults, and that is how today we are recognized and known as children of God. And here consists of our confidence, for we must consider that God wishes to induce us to be more deeply touched by our own faults and to hold them in horror and detestation. When we see that it was necessary that the Son of God endured so much persecution and that the Heavenly Father did not spare him at all. Seeing then the pain of our sins to be such in the person of the Son of God, we surely have to humble ourselves and to be entirely humbled in ourselves. However, we also need to take courage and be grounded in such confidence that we may not doubt at all. For when we come before God, our Lord Jesus Christ acquired grace for us when he suffered himself to be so vilified because of us. For he acquired for us glory and dignity before God and his angels through this. Now it is said that our Lord Jesus was led to the place which is called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull. The Hebrew word from which this is derived means to roll. But they so used it because when a body was decayed, they found the skull dry and it is like a ball which rolls away. They called then this place Golgotha because many evildoers were punished there and their heads were seen there. Here we have to remember what the apostle says in the epistle to the Hebrews. 
that our Lord Jesus Christ was led outside the city, as was customary, with sacrifices. And the blood was carried into the sanctuary to wipe away the blemishes of the people, Hebrews 13. It was said that such a sacrifice was a curse. It must then be disposed of far away. Behold, the Son of God, who was willing to receive this condition upon himself, in order that we may know that in truth we are now set free and absolved before God. For we deserve that God rejects us, even that he pours out his horrible vengeance upon us while he looks at us as we are. There is then no other means to acquire grace except that we come to our Lord Jesus Christ and that we have all our refuge in him when he was willing to be cursed and detestable for our sakes in order that we might find favor before God and that we might be acceptable to him. For although already Pilate, his judge, had justified him many times, yet he had to receive in his person everything that was required to redeem us. For he was our pledge and in everything and by everything, he had to answer for us. So, after having known that our Lord Jesus was in this way rejected as not being worthy to be of the company of men, then, I say, let us learn to follow him and to renounce the world, just as we are exhorted to in this passage, and if we must be mocked, cut off as rotten members and be held in contempt, let us endure it all patiently, yielding submissively until the day comes that our sorrows are converted into joy. The day that God will wipe away the tears from our eyes and things that we now judge to be shame will be converted for us into glory. For it is certain that all that we endure for our Lord Jesus Christ is more honorable before God than all the glory of this world. That, then, is what we have to remember on this point. Now the Gospel writer adds that our Lord Jesus was mocked by all those who passed by, and above all by priests and scribes in their own kind. And what was the occasion of it? If he is the Son of God, let him come down, they say, and let him save himself for he surely saved others. If he is the king of Israel, let him show it. Here we see such a terrible blindness in these miserable people who were possessed by Satan for not having any more feeling or insight. Behold the priests, who were supposed to be messengers of God, for he had ordained them to this function in order that his word and his will might be known through their mouth. Behold the scribes who are trained in the law, and nevertheless they, supposing that they can crush our Lord Jesus, show that they tread underfoot all holy scripture and all the religion of which they boasted. When the Messiah was previously spoken of to them, they certainly responded that he had to be born in Bethlehem. They were also warned and informed that the Redeemer who was promised to them had to suffer such a death. This was not an obscure thing. The passage from Isaiah, chapter 53, was as clear as if one gave a recitation of what our Lord Jesus Christ endured. They ought, then, to have known that it was impossible to have a clearer picture of things than did the prophet, although he had spoken of them such a long time before. 
Then there are, as in Zechariah, so in Daniel, the declarations that God must gather his people and exalt his church, Daniel 12, Zechariah 2. Namely, that the Redeemer of the world should suffer every reproach and curse before the world. How is it then that they so defied the Son of God when he exercises his office as it had been sufficiently declared by the prophets? So we see that Satan carried them away when they forgot everything they had previously known. So let us be advised so as to walk in the fear of God that after having tasted his word, we may receive it with reverence and obey our Lord Jesus Christ who is presented to us there. For it is also in him that we will find perfection of virtues if we come to him in humility. For if we presume to play with God, our audacity must receive such a reward as we read here of these miserable men who were so carried away by their rage. Yet we can profit from these blasphemies, learning from them to do the opposite. For since our Lord Jesus willed to be our king and our head, that is why he did not save himself. The enemies of truth said, let him save himself if he is the king of Israel. But he had to endure in his person to gain for us salvation. Why then did our Lord Jesus not spare himself? Why did he endure a death so bitter and so shameful unless it was necessary? so that we might be delivered through such a ransom. We have a king who preferred our salvation to his own life, and one that suffered everything that was required for our redemption, and had no other consideration except to redeem what was lost. For we would have been devoid of all hope if the Son of God had left us in our original condition. But when he was swallowed up in death, that is where our deliverance is found. When he endured everything so patiently, that is the cause why God now extends his hand and his power to help us in our time of need. Our Lord Jesus had to be there, as it were, abandoned by God, in order that today we may feel that he watches for our salvation and he will always be ready to aid us when we require it. However, let us also learn to arm ourselves against all temptations. When the devil comes to assail us and wishes to make us believe that God has forsaken us and that he has turned his back upon us and tempts us, that it is a disappointing thing to hope in him. He suffered that such blasphemies were poured out against him, and yet he constantly resisted them in such a way that by this means the victory was acquired for us. Let us fight when the devil comes to lay siege against us, to overthrow our faith and to close the door upon us. Let us follow our Lord Jesus Christ and let us wait for the hour when God extends his arm to show that he is pitiful towards us and that he is father to us. Although for a time he suffers that we will be beaten down, this is the lesson from these taunts and mockings which were heaped upon our Lord Jesus. There are still others. He trusted in God. Let God save him if God loves him. That had already been typified in the person of David for these very words in Psalm 22, verse 8, are recited when he complains that his enemies have taken occasion to shoot out their tongues at him, Psalm 22. 
and they almost put their feet on his neck. Now it is certain that this is the most fatal plague that Satan can devise against us. For the life of men consists in faith and in the refuge which we have in God while leaning upon his promises. If we are robbed of these, we are done. We are entirely lost and cast down. That is also why Satan tried to destroy the confidence which our Lord Jesus had in God his Father. It is true that Jesus Christ fought with a greater power than we are capable of, for he was not subject to any unbelief. Though that may be, yet he felt such fury as there was in these temptations. For as the devil had previously plotted such things, he now also doubles his efforts. He had said to him, If you are the Son of God, let these stones be changed into bread and eat, for you are a poor, starved man. Matthew 4. And do you not see that you must experiment to see if you have any power or not? Now, in that Jesus Christ was not a fool any more than when they reproach him for that confidence he had here in God. So now, although we may not have the same power to resist, yet we ought to be strengthened in him, knowing that it is for us and to our profit that he conquered such assaults and rose above them. There are also those who say, he saved others and cannot save himself. We see again how they were defeated. For wasn't it the fact that he had saved others a certain and infallible mark of his divine power? Jesus Christ had raised the dead. This was not unknown to them. He had given sight to the blind. He had healed paralytics, the lame, even demons. Behold, Jesus Christ! who unfolded the great treasures of his goodness and power in all the miracles which were done by him. Yet, that is still an objection against him. We see then how these poor madmen, unless someone restrains them, are their own judges to deprive them of every excuse, so that when they will come before the great judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be able to allege anything to cover themselves. For there they are condemned by their own mouths. If our Lord saved others, it is certain that he could have saved himself, unless he preferred others to himself. What can be perceived there except an admirable goodness, that he wished to be cast into the abyss according to men in order to draw us out of the depth of the abysses. That he was willing to suffer everything we deserved in order to acquit us from it. That is, he did not wish at all to bring his own life into consideration. He, he did not wish at all to spare his person in order that we might have such a bail and such a ransom. All the more we are confirmed in our faith, seeing everything the devil plots to trouble us and to hinder us from coming to our Lord Jesus ought to serve to make us all the more sure. May we know how to profit from all this. Now it is certain that the devil makes all his efforts to hinder us at this point. For knowing where our salvation rests, he applies every means in order to be able to deprive us of it. For he knows, if he can induce us to be scandalized in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has won his case. And we test him too much. But besides that, all the scandals which the devil raises up and puts before our eyes 
to make us turn away from the Son of God should serve as confirmation. For when it is said that Jesus Christ saves others and does not save himself, it is a proposition which, according to our human judgment, should make us conceive some disdain against the person of the Son of God. It is designed to make us reject him and not put our hope in him. But quite the contrary. Let us know when the Son of God had no regard for himself, and he had no concern at all for his own life. It is because he held the salvation of souls so dear and so precious that he wished to work everything to that end. Since it is so, we ought boldly to be founded upon him, to call upon him, and to be made entirely sure that it is not in vain that he suffered so much for our sakes. As for their saying, Here is he who destroys the temple and rebuilds it in three days. There is too villainous a malice in contriving that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple. But he had said, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it at the end of three days. It was not then referred to the destruction of the temple except by his enemies. And when they crucified him, should they not have known that the thing that was already beginning to be fulfilled? For they were not ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ had declared himself to be the true temple of God with respect to his human body. It is very certain that his body deserves to be called temple, more than the one in Jerusalem and more than in all the heavens. Now they destroyed it while he was among them, and he rebuilt it at the end of three days. Also, they did not forget that, for they knew well afterwards what to say to Pilate, Matthew 27. But by that we see that the, if the devil possesses men, he makes them so stupid that they can no longer distinguish between good and evil. They are full of such fury that they throw themselves with abandon against God, as if they wished to defy him fully and with deliberate purpose. For we see only defeat in his death according to appearances and according to the common sense of men. But Jesus Christ repaired everything by his resurrection. All the more we are able to be firm in the faith and to defy Satan with all the gestures he could make to shake us and to cause us to doubt. Concerning the saying, they gave our Lord Jesus vinegar mixed with gall and myrrh to drink, it is proper to assume that this was done according to the custom of that time to shorten the death of evildoers. All the same, Jesus Christ, having tasted it, did not wish to drink because he knew that his hour had not yet come. They were accustomed then, before evildoers were raised on the cross, to give them this drink in order that the blood might be stirred up and they gave up their spirits sooner. For this kind of death was cruel enough and they needed to be helped through it. In fact, we will see later how the robbers had their bones broken and snapped in order that they might not languish any longer. Though that may be, our Lord Jesus did not wish to drink this poison beverage, to declare that he was ready to receive in obedience the condition which was committed to him by God his Father. It is true that this death was very hard for him, for apart from its being dreadful, he had in it spiritual torments, of which we will treat tomorrow, God willing. All that, then, might well have induced our Lord Jesus Christ to approach death as soon as it was possible for him, 
but he wished to place himself with entire obedience to endure until he might be delivered without any human means. But it is in these articles, when his clothing was divided among them and they cast lots over them, that scripture was fulfilled. David, a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, makes such complaints. It is true that this is by figure of speech, when he says that they have put gall in his drink and vinegar, and that they have divided his garments, and that in his affliction they still stung him and put him in further agony, Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, as cruel and inhuman people would still like to molest their poor victim who can make no resistance. David uses such a figure of speech when he says that his wealth was divided among them in Psalm 22. Under that word, he speaks of his wife, of his house, of all his goods, and of all his estate. But in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, this had to be seen with the eye. They gave him then vinegar and gall in order that it might be known that David was really the type of him, and that he was the true Redeemer who had been promised from all time. For why was the kingdom raised in the house of David unless with a promise that would endure longer than the sun or the moon? There was then this eternal kingdom, which today has been established in the person of the Redeemer. For these things, which were, as it were, in shadow and type in the person of David, had to have their perfection in Jesus Christ. Besides, as for the gospel writers adding that even the robbers who were with our Lord Jesus Christ mocked him, it was said by only one, as it appears by St. Luke, who declares these things more at length. But it is a common enough manner of speaking as when one says, one speaks even to little children. Although there may be only one, the speaker takes the plural number. There must be women among them, yet there need be only one. In this way, then, it is said that our Lord Jesus Christ was spited, mocked, and blasphemed by all, even by the malefactors. For when he was identified with two robbers, it is in order to aggravate all the more the shame of his death. It is true that this was the place where they were accustomed to executing evildoers. All the same, they are not satisfied with such a shame. But he had to be considered worse and more detestable than all the robbers in the world when they put one on each of his two sides to say that he is the chief of them all. And in that, as says St. Mark, was verified by what is said in the prophet. He was reputed among the transgressors. Mark 15, referencing Isaiah 53. Now, without this reputation today, in what place and condition would we be before God? For we cannot obtain grace without righteousness. God must hate us and reject us until we are righteous and purged of all stains and offenses before him. And can God renounce himself? Can he strip himself of his holiness, justice, and integrity? Now, how will we now be justified before God, except inasmuch as our Lord Jesus Christ was reputed among the criminals. We are then exempt from this class, and God receives us, and we are acceptable to him as if we were entirely pure and innocent. For as our Lord Jesus suffered being in such shame and disgrace before men, 
That, in summary, is what we have to remember about the robbers. But we must not insist to the end upon the account of St. Luke. That is, that one of the robbers rebukes his companion when he sees him so stubborn. Really, says he, will there never be a time when you will be humiliated? For the condemnation and the punishment which you endure are for your misdeeds and for your crimes. You are a man plunged into every curse, and during your entire lifetime you were so brutish as to take pleasure in your faults, so now you must begin to groan. For a man, however undone he may be, although he has pleasure his whole lifetime and thinks he will never come to judgment at all, he mocks justice and even defies it. He will do it as he trusts that he will remain unpunished, yet when he is captured, he must drop his cackling. Now here you are, says he, in great torment. You see that God and men are now bringing you to account, and also your conscience rebukes you, that it is for your crimes that you endure, and you still defy God? Here is a sentence which well shows that this robber had been taught by the Spirit of God, although we soon see it incomparably more. Already in this word we can judge what kind of teacher the Spirit of God is when he gives such instruction to those who had been entirely led astray. So let us learn to fear God, although he spares us. But above all, if we are beaten by God's rods and he makes us feel that he is offended against us, then may we be all the more incited to cry out to him. And may we also have stability to patiently endure our afflictions, as we see that this poor robber did. Not to raise ourselves at all in pride and fury like the others. What is more, in these two we see, as it were, mirrors of all mankind. For we see the miseries which we are surrounded by. For we have been deprived of the blessing of God in the fall of Adam. It is true that although God by his incalculable goodness rises above this curse, when he always declares himself Father in many ways and makes us feel his gentleness, and the love which he bears toward us, and the care which he had for us, yet we have many marks of our sins still. And high and low we perceive that we are cursed by God. Death finally comes for us all. When we have languished in this world, when we all have been subject to many maladies, to heat and to cold, when we have been tormented in one way or another, then we have endured infinite Miseries, we must return to corruption and ashes. However, we see that those who are touched by God in such a way that the afflictions which they endure serve for their salvation and turn to their aid, as St. Paul speaks in the 8th chapter of Romans. Others grow worse and worse, and instead of humbling themselves and being touched with any repentance, only bring themselves more misery and increasingly provoke the wrath of God and light more fire to be destroyed by. So let us cast our eyes upon these two robbers as mirrors of all the world. For from the greatest to the least, we are all guilty before God. And if altogether we endure, who will boast of his innocence? Who will be able to be absolved? Being then plunged into condemnation, we endure rightly for our sins. However, we do not all make equal confession of it. 
For there are those who grow from bad to worse, and the rebellion which they make against God is obvious. They gnash their teeth, they foam at the mouth in their rage and cruelty, and they do not wish in any way to come to this condemnation. Or perhaps they take the bit in their teeth and show a willful contempt to say that God will not get them anything at all, and that they will have no master over them. Now let us conclude that when poor sinners recognize themselves, when they humble themselves, when they confess their debt, and that there is good reason why they are suffered to be chastised, when, I say, poor sinners are drawn to such understandings, let us know that God has put his hand upon them, that he has touched them by his Spirit, and that in this one can observe an infinite goodness when he draws back from perdition and hell those who were devoid of all hope. Now, in summary, we see in the person of this poor robber an example of faith, which is as excellent as any there ever was. We should be carried away and astonished by such a miracle which God performed. For in what state is he? There he is, near death. He endures horrible torments. He waits for someone to come and break and snap his legs, waiting to be dismembered there, who is still in torment so bitter and dreadful that it is to make him lose sense and memory. And he sees our Lord Jesus, who is also in the same desperate situation, indeed with greater shame. And how does he speak? Not only does he recognize his faults to humble himself before God, not only does he exercise the office of teacher to convert his companion and lead him back to the good way, but he makes a confession which deserves to be preferred to all others if we consider such circumstances well. Remember me, says he, when you come into your kingdom. How is it that he is able to conceive of a kingdom in Jesus Christ? He's there perishing on the cross. He is cursed both by God and by men. For this sentence of the law had been pronounced by the mouth of God. Cursed is he who will hang on the tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And that was not done in a chance case, but God put there his only son. When he sees Jesus Christ to be there under the curse, both before God and before men, indeed in the depth of despair from the human point of view, he cannot collect his thoughts to say that Jesus Christ is king, except from faith and in spirit. Yet he calls him king, seeing him in his death. Save me, says he, give me life, for if you will remember me, that will be all my bliss. Now, when we have pondered all these circumstances, it is certain that the faith which was in this robber was as excellent as was in any man who ever lived. However, let us not be ashamed to be his disciples, for in fact the death of our Lord Jesus Christ will not profit us unless we are condemned in ourselves in order to obtain salvation in him. And we cannot be absolved before God unless we have confessed that there is in us only iniquity and filth. Since it is true that we are guilty before God and that our conscience judges and condemns us, let us not be ashamed to follow this robber, seeing that he can be a good teacher 
and even now that our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, that he has taken possession of the glory which was given to him by God his Father, do not doubt that we are fully restored to him. And conclude and know that Jesus Christ remembers us. For as he has been ordained our shepherd, he watches over our salvation in order that we may be secure under his hand and under his protection. Besides, we may learn to bear patiently the miseries of this present life, and may that not turn us aside from coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. The robber was heard, as we see, yet he did not escape death, which was very hard and terrible. May all our afflictions be sweetened, as we know that all will turn out for good and for salvation by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we have to learn. Besides, let us add to it the answer of our Lord Jesus Christ when he promises to the robber that he will be with him that day in paradise. Although our Lord Jesus was not yet raised from the dead, and he had not even fulfilled all that was required for our redemption and salvation, Already he displayed the power and the fruit of his death and passion. It is true that the fulfillment was in the resurrection, but since it is conjoined to his death and passion, and since we know that as he suffered in the weakness of his flesh, so he is raised in the power of his spirit. As he endured for our sins in order that we might be acceptable before God, he is also raised for our justification. I say, since we know that, then how courageous should we freely come to him? We must not doubt at all when it will please him to remember us and to hide us under the shadow of his wings, that we can defy Satan death and all miseries and glory in our weaknesses. Although according to the world we are poor, unlucky creatures, may we never cease to rejoice in God. Now we bow in humble reverence before the majesty of our God. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Backel. Ed is a Washington State native, and he has taught for 30-plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington, Nebraska. He currently serves in Warden, Washington, and he has been serving at Warden Community Church since May of 2010. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We encourage you to share and tell others about this show and the studio and what we're doing here. Especially share this episode. Put it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter. Put it wherever you want. If you tag us on Twitter, we'll be happy to respond there as well. Uh, and yeah, just be sharing these episodes, telling other people about uh, this show that we're doing. Being able to listen to a sermon by John Calvin and have a very interesting discussion and look at his history. I think there's a lot to be learned uh, from this kind of stuff. So let other people know what we are doing here. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Yeah.